This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara Ong-Whaley, Associate Director of JMU Civic, along with Dr. Abe Goldberg, Executive Director, and rising sophomore and Democracy Fellow at JMU Civic, Ryan Ritter. On this episode, we'll talk with John Dickerson, a correspondent for 60 Minutes at CBS News. He's a contributing editor to The Atlantic and the host of the Whistle Stop podcast and co-host of Slate's Political Gab Fest. He is the author of three books, including On Her Trail, a book about his mother who was also a news correspondent, the New York Times bestseller, Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History, and his newest book, which we'll be talking about with him today, The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. Enjoy the show. John, you've spent much of your career both studying and covering the American presidency and presidential elections. Your new book, The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency, is a thoughtful, rich analysis that combines scholarship, primary source documents, interviews, and firsthand experiences to help us better understand why the presidency as an institution is broken and what this implies for democracy and governance. You show us how expansive the presidency has become from what was initially intended for the institution and its responsibilities, and why no individual president can possibly live up to the expectations for the office. I wonder if you can start by telling us in your analysis, what are the key inflection points or factors that contributed to expanding public expectations and demands of the presidency, and to making the presidency an inordinately complex institution? It's funny, when I think about that, which obviously was the, um, you know, one of the constant questions I was figuring out in my mind as I was putting the book together and I kept going further and further back in history. And, you know, you have um, Madison and Hamilton debating what the constitution says about the president almost as soon as it's ratified. So the debate about what the presidency is and how big it's supposed to be was happening right from the beginning. But I guess the biggest, the two big chunks would be as the uh, America turned from an agrarian to an industrial society, the recognition that the pace of modern advancement um, was just going too fast for the office and that it had to, to work to keep up. Um, and then, of course, the big, the big explosion of the size of the office is uh, when FDR is elected first um, as a national response to the Great Depression. So both Congress expanded and the presidency expanded. And then, and then answering the threat of Nazi Germany and the and the buildup to World War II, and then the fighting of World War II, and then the debate, which in our discussions you uh, helpfully reminded me of, um, over the national security state and the national security powers of the presidency during the Truman administration. Basically, you can see the national security part of the presidential portfolio blooming after. Uh, this, or during the Second World War, then during the Cold War, and then it takes another huge uh, increase during the War on Terror. So basically, it's, it's, it really comes to be this overburdened uh, thing, starting with FDR in the national security realm, and then you have a series of presidents basically picking up on FDR's use of the domestic powers of the presidency to answer basically any national need so that we now are in the position where on domestic affairs, everybody turns their eyes to the president for a solution. Seemingly, on one hand, the presidency seems to have gained expansive, unchecked power. But on the other hand, it 
it seems to be quite weak and or incapable of fully addressing any real issues the country currently faces. Uh, why is the modern presidential power so paradoxical in that way? Yes, I, and this is, an, again, you know, st trying to stumble around and figure out what the right metaphor is for this. And I kept uh, coming up with sort of you have this massive bodybuilder who has these these bristling arm and shoulder muscles and then walks around on little chicken legs because there are extraordinary powers of the presidency. I mean, think about Truman, his decision alone to uh, drop the atomic bomb, two of them. Um, I mean, that is, that is power wielded by a single human being uh, unmatched in basically the history of mankind in a single human being. Not to mention the fact that he uh, you know, moved forward with the Korean Korean War or Korean police action. Um, so you have extraordinary powers in the presidency. And we see um, even Donald Trump, who's been uh, endlessly frustrated by the constraints that are put on him by the office and by Congress's um, lack of activity, still has a great deal of power to set the national conversation, to take an entire industry, which the news industry, which is supposedly devoted to um, applying judgment and reason to uh, the events of the day. And he is able to basically control its movements on a whim. Um, and yet, uh, we see most recently in his frustration over the breakdown of talks uh, with respect to aid to those suffering in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, that he is left to do what previous presidents have done, which is issue an executive order and memoranda, which essentially instruct his uh, aides to think about doing something. I mean, it's, it's, if you look at the language, it is so weak and sad in the context of the challenge it is seeking to meet that it highlights uh, one of those many ways the president is constrained. This was by design, of course, was to give the president powers in one area to move quickly and with energy, but not give him so much power that the ambitions of the president would be tempted to become despotic. The problem is that the willing partner in the presidential system, Congress, uh, has had difficulty uh, arranging itself in a way that it can be productive. And the partisanship and the relationship between the president and Congress has made normal productivity along the lines established by the Constitution and tradition has made it frustrating for presidents, um, which, at, which makes uh, the job frustrating despite the areas in which it may have tremendous power. John, you mentioned President Trump. Um, most would agree that his rather unorthodox communication leadership style has perhaps reinvented the office of the presidency. In fact, presidential historian Douglas Brinkley said that the president has, quote, dynamited the institution of the presidency. Do you think he is changing it, and in what ways, and what will be the legacy of that moving forward? Yes, he, um, well... He, I mean, he is a man at war with the office he holds. Uh, and so it has been a constant struggle to recreate, uh, detonate, and otherwise the presidency. And he has also decided to operate in the office in a totally different way. So when we look at, for, for example, his communication style, um, his ability to speak directly to the voters, his ability to control the news cycle, his ability to um, turn the heads of the news industry um, is unmatched. 
and yet it is actually quite ineffective with respect to the traditional goals of a president, which is to persuade uh, the public and to persuade fellow lawmakers. Um, he is, um, the border wall that he has fought for is uh, not a majority position in the country. Uh, the tax cuts that he passed did not have majority support in the country. The replacement for the Affordable Care Act, which he supported, um, was deeply unpopular. Uh, his response to both the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, the um, discussion about um, systemic racism in America in the wake of George Floyd's murder, all of those things have gotten um, uh, are, are he, his, the ratings that in the polls have shown him to be highly negative on all of those. So he's not been able to convince people that what he's, to convince a majority of what he's doing is correct. So I think that means that it's not going to be terribly durable as a, as, um, as a method for future presidents. I mean, they may try to use Twitter, but they won't use it in the way that he does. Um, um, and I think that to the extent that he's changed the presidency, he may have uh, reminded people why some of the norms uh, exist in the first place. Um, and so to the extent that we've seen presidencies react to the ones that have come before, um, you might see his presidency in that tradition as well. So in the one, in the one sense, keeping to a pattern, which is that presidents uh, reflect the opposite of those that preceded them, but then also, um, reanimating some of the parts of the presidency that he has tried to dismantle and that people find uh, upon reflection that they kind of like. John, one of the things that you grapple with in the book is sort of the increased public expectations of the presidency. So there's been the growth of the presidency as an institution, but a lot of that is fed by public demands. And I think one of the real useful stories is thinking about um, presidents in natural disasters. And um, you talk about the, the job of, of the president as hero, <laughs> um, and that we're expecting a hero to, to rise up, um, uh, to, to meet the, de the demands of the day. I wonder if there's any solution to rolling back the presidency and the public demands of the institution, or if that would just be sort of a futile attempt at this point to put Pandora back in, in the vase. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, um, on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with the president playing the sort of hero first responder, which has a kind of corollary role or a, uh, there's an adjunct role to that, which is then as this kind of national pastor who uh, settles the emotional needs of the nation um, all of which were obviously not in the, um, in, the, in the original conception of the job, but of course there wasn't a national television experience and social media uh, connectivity um, that, I, that, that created the need for, um, uh, for a, a single national actor to speak, speak to the country. Um, and it's also difficult to, to untangle the kind of day-to-day um, -day requirements of the first responder kind of action hero presidency and the actual real needs that the president, that the country needs that we're seeing laid bare uh, in this current moment. So for example, um, in public health, the one thing that, that all public health experts say is that the most important thing to get out to the public is clear clean information about the state of the pandemic or whatever the natural disaster is. Well, there's no better person to do that than a president when you have a disaster that hits the whole country. Um, so 
Um, that's somewhere in which, because the president is basically the most influential political actor on the stage, that's a, there's a real legitimate role for a president there. Um, now, does the president have to be over at FEMA in a windbreaker getting uh, briefings in advance of every single um, uh, uh, hurricane that threatens the, the uh, coast of America? Probably not. Um, and we shouldn't really want him to be there. Um, but uh, so I think that the, the expect there are two. There's a secondary problem, too. There's the theatrics of disaster um, uh, relief, not even relief, but disaster theater where presidents have to play a a performative role in order for people to think that they're on the case. But there's a policy reason that's not such a great idea either. In a national pandemic, it's very easy to make the case for a federal response. But on in individual disasters, the local response um, should be aware a lot of the, and this is based on reporting I've done with former heads of FEMA and disaster officials who say basically there's a real reason to have local responders take care of disasters. Um, that they just can move faster, they have the authorities, the governor knows uh, all of the um, um, police and other disaster officials, and it's a much just smarter way to run a disaster response. The federal government has a role it can play, but it shouldn't be seen as a first responder. So there's, a, there's, there's the performative part, and then there's the, just the policy. It's not great policy to have the, national, the federal government um, you know, mucking about in the early hours after a disaster. Um, but, and then there's a third thing, which is that if we pay too much attention to a national presidential disaster role, we, we don't think through some of the long-term aspects. We think of it merely as a, we have disasters and then there's a kind of response to them. We don't think in long terms about these disasters. A lot of the disaster preparedness work that can be done along the East Coast can be done by building houses further off the ocean, because as the sea level rises, we're going to have more of these devastating hurricanes that cause this kind of coastal havoc. And that's somewhere where um, we should be thinking in terms of disasters, but we tend to lump all of our thinking in the office of the presidency and in the days after a disaster. So there's a way in which the presidency pulls our attention, uh, our national attention, into kind of short-term responses where some of these disaster issues should be thought of much more in terms of long-term planning. John, you show throughout your book the unique task the president has faced throughout history in healing partisan divides. Uh, prominent political scientists now say that our country is as polarized as ever with deep ideological differences hampering effective government governance and straying from the founder's original intentions. Uh, in the coming years, should the president, whomever they may be, take on this role and attempt to work across the aisle more? This is one of the big questions I wrestled with, which is, is there a duty for the president to solve this problem? If you think of the presidency as, the, as an organization that um, addresses the big problems the country faces, this is a huge one. Just basically our inability to work collectively to take on national problems. The problem is, it's a very hard problem to solve. And the, and the authorities that a president gets by gaining the power through an election are usually gained, or not usually, they are gained by playing within the partisan system. So it would require an almost Shakespearean reversal of um, behavior in which somebody would use all the tools of partisanship to win and then would come into office and diminish those tools. It would be an act of extraordinary uh, character and virtue and in keeping with the foundations of the American experiment, um, but it would be uh, 
it would be an extraordinary thing and unlikely to happen. Um, although in the book, I did sort of go through a, um, a thought experiment about what it would have been like for Donald Trump to do that, because he actually, in a way, was set up for that kind of behavior. He had no fixed ideological opinions. He had no real allegiance to the parties. And he loves a good show. And nothing would create a good show for, for all um, people watching than a president who decides after being elected by one party that he's going to distribute power back in a more equitable way across ideologies. Anyway, he didn't do that. Um, so does a president take on this challenge? Because you can basically, a lot of people think that Barack Obama wasted a good deal of his political capital trying to get an Affordable Care Act through the Congress by letting it work its will and letting both parties try to come up with a piece of legislation. In the end, he left office and still believes that basically Republicans were not acting with him in good faith. So if your starting proposition is that the opposite party, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, is not acting in good faith, then why should I spend as president all of this time trying to get them to act in good faith? All I'm going to do is get mugged by them every time we have a, a public debate. Um, on the other hand, if this problem doesn't get solved and the presidency and its persuasive power, whatever its strength, isn't um, sh shown or shined on this problem, it's not going to get fixed. Um, and a president can't do that much, but a president could... Um, uh, uh, maybe have a duty to get caught trying to fix it. Um, but again, that would every time a president does something, it comes at a cost of what they're not doing. And in this case, um, the going at trying to fix the partisan divide, which is structural and over which president doesn't have a whole lot of power other than just agenda setting power, um, could undermine their ability to get other things done that that is on their to do list. John, one of my favorite quotes and overarching themes from the book is an insight you draw on from President Eisenhower to not let the urgent crowd out the important, uh, which seems like good advice for everyone, not just presidents. <laughs> um, what are the important things the presidency as an institution has failed to address with constant focus on the urgent? And I wonder how the failure of past presidents as individuals to focus on the important affected ongoing challenges we see resurfacing in our democracy, economy, and society today. Mm -hmm. That's a great question. Well, I mean, certainly the pandemic would be um, uh, item number one. Um, you know, there there was a if you look at the surprises that have hit the presidents um, recently, and um, that almost it happens to almost all presidents. You know, after the attacks of 9-11, there was a great debate about whether, you know, the U.S. didn't connect the dots, didn't. And it was mostly considered that the intelligence agencies were the ones that didn't see it coming. They knew about al-Qaeda and they knew about bin Laden, but they just weren't creative in their imagination and their thinking to imagine that they might use planes as weapons. Um, and so there was a lot of thinking about, but it was all basically located in the, the intelligence agencies. Um, Clinton and Bush weren't terribly blamed for this. In the case of the pandemic, you had George W. Bush who initiated um, uh, a review of pandemic preparedness in 2005. Then you had Barack Obama do a series of things to prepare his administration, leaving a booklet of almost 100 pages of what to do for the successive administration. And then you had, among the tabletop exercises that were a part of the transition and the handover from Obama to Trump, you had them, uh, the, the, the key officials sit down together, each of them in their respective jobs, so the chief of staff sitting next to the incoming chief of staff, 
the Secretary of the Department of Homeland and Security next to the incoming one and run through an ex a hypothetical pandemic that came from China. They practiced this. So that was a way in which the long-term thinking was already a part of the presidency, and, and yet um, it was not sufficiently tended to by the current administration um, in terms of address, in terms of thinking through a big challenge that might come that isn't, um, you know, that you don't see in that day's papers. Another huge one to pay attention to is the threat of cyber warfare or a cyber attack. Um, because it not only could be devastating, but there are no the rules of the road for cyber warfare are not um, are not so clear, and um, and it's also a situation in which some of the actors who have the ability to um, to act in such a conflict would be non governmental organizations, companies, for example. So um, what what governs the way they retaliate? And what role does, a, does an administration have in that? Um, and the, again, the effects of a cyber attack could be quite devastating on the electric grid, on the banking system, on communications. Um, and so preparedness for that is something that, um, that basically everybody in an administration, well, not everybody, but that, that sufficient number of people in an administration should be constantly worried about. Um, and then there are other longer term questions um, like the, the income inequality that is a part of America's life and that we've seen laid bare by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, not only is a, is a challenge that needs to be addressed in and of itself for the future of America, but also its continued existence constrains policymakers and what they can actually do when some of these crises hit. Um, and and the, the room that, that voters give them to do certain things is constrained by voters' um, irritation with the fact that the system is not working for them. Um, that is a long-term um, governor on or hindrance on the ability to make policy is the, is the fact that basically people think that the, the system is rigged against them. Um, so I'll stop there. I didn't really get to the lawmakers and what, but I guess implicit in what I'm saying is, is ways in which lawmakers haven't taken care of the, some of these long-term challenges, um, you know, which as you say, is the central challenge for the job is, is being able to think about the future when so much of your day is consumed with the present. As we are in an election year, you do argue in the book that we should treat presidential campaigns as a job interview. How should voters evaluate candidates this year and are there special considerations or requirements for hiring the president in the time of a COVID global uh, public health pandemic, economic and racial justice crises? I think that, the, I mean, we should always evaluate presidents kind of on the same, uh, the same in any year. One benefit we have, at least with respect to my argument, is that often in the press, we have to up the stakes to get people to focus on the the weight of the choice they're making. We don't have to do that now. The stakes are quite high and we see them every day. I argue in the book, which was finished before COVID-19 hit, that the presidency is essentially a job where a president has to build an organization to be able to handle big high stakes surprises. So we've got one. Um, and um, as a disaster official told the New York Times after my book was out, or I would have put the quote in the book, um, a disaster is a bad time to hand out business cards. Once the disaster hits, you can't get your team together and uh, you know 
ride to the sound of the trumpet. It's too late. So you need to think through, you need to do a couple of things when thinking about a president. Has a president been in a situation where they've been tested sufficiently that they can just handle the sheer weight and freneticism of a moment of crisis? Do they just have the personal durability to do it? Secondly, do they have a theory for how to manage things? Because the, it's not a job where we elect a human being. We're electing an organization. And um, there are some individuals who work great as solo operators, and there are others that are great leaders of organizations. Not to take anything away from the great single operators, but that's not the job you're being hired for. So um, it makes no sense to hire a pitcher to be a linebacker in football. Your uh, your pitchers are great, but the job we're hiring is for a linebacker. So um, we need to think clearly about exactly what the job is. And it's lovely to talk about disruption and all the kinds of great things that um, that one can have a fantasy about how the office might change. But the fact of the matter is that a person is being elected to be at the top of an organization when very dangerous and highly consequential things are happening. Um, and so we need to refocus the way we think about the job in terms of just that organizational and management position. Um, and then the final thing is just how a president and the organization they imagine they will run um, prioritizes the challenges that America faces. Um, and we've already talked a little bit about whether the partisan uh, sclerosis that is um, a part of our system is a, is a challenge they will take on, is uh, inequality the challenge they will take on, is restoring America's place in the world a challenge they will take on, and to have a clearer sense of how they set priorities, because they're only going to be able to take on one or two things, and the things they take on and the order in which they take them on will shape the environment for the rest of their presidency. Um, and some theory about that that is based on something more than a slogan, but that seems durable enough to guide them when chance and serendipity interrupt their well-made plans, um, which is to say an adaptability. One of the things that you don't want is for an administration to respond to a challenge by mashing the same button that they've always been mashing. There needs to be some adaptability in the organization. Um, and so if there's some way to figure out if a president has that, has that ability to see things afresh, um, uh, that is very important for a job where you're being thrown new challenges pretty frequently. So do you think the modern campaign adequately tests presidents on the types of things that the people are looking for in a leader? No. <laughs> um, I think it, it, you know, there are some things that the campaign does test for. It's a pressure cooker. That's good. You need to test and see whether uh, a candidate can handle it. Um, it tests the ability of ideas to break through in a crazy environment. Um, uh, and, um, but, but, but campaigns are all about conflict. Governing is about compromise. Campaigns are about um, seeing things in black and white stark terms. Reality is much more, much more complex. Campaigns are about rhetoric. The presidency is not so much about that. Um, campaigns are about show uh, and action in a performative way. Uh, the presidency is often a job where restraint is the most important thing. One of the things that campaigns could have done and, and don't do as much as they used to, and this is a problem, 
is that when you elect a president um, as Donald Trump, essentially, Donald Trump ran a kind of base only campaign and has run a base only presidency. Um, and this is where you see one of the real challenges between the way we run for the office and the way we occupy it. That gave him some success. It certainly gave him success within the system as it exists. It, he was able to pass a tax cut. He was able to deliver uh, deregulation and judges to his side. And that has been successful for Republicans. He's been able to increase defense spending. He's protected um, uh, the unborn, as he would put it, um, and has been able to deliver famously for Republicans in office. But when you come to a pandemic and a president has to speak to the entire nation and a president has to intuit the needs and cares of that portion of the nation that didn't vote for him, he is sufficient. He's significantly undermining his ability to both know what the nation needs and provide an answer by um, running a base-only presidency and a base-only campaign. He just lacks the and shows no interest in the sufficient empathy to um, to handle the public-facing part of the job, let alone tactically what's required to address it. Um, and then that's certainly true with respect to the outcry in the wake of George Floyd's death. Um, we can have a debate about the police and what reforms need to be made in the individual police um, departments. But the president has shown um, no interest in deploying any of the capital or, or, um, uh, or even performance part of the job towards the, what he hears from the streets. Um, and uh, the protests that are going on um, he just, it, it is it's something that he has not shown any particular interest in. Um, being president of the entire nation is one of the things that a president has to be. It's the job. You are everybody's president. And to the extent our campaigns make candidates that are just the president of their coalition, then it, it also takes them far away from what the job requires. John, you've said in the past that to cover an election, you have to have a theory of the election. Do you have any, uh, do you have an emerging theory of the 2020 election? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do, but it keeps, um, it keeps changing. I mean, at the very basic level, the, the theory is, so the theory is it's a referendum on President Trump's performance in office. Um, and that's not a surprise for, um, for a, for a re-election campaign, um, particularly one in which there is a major reason for people to be evaluating the federal response um, to a key issue or to a series of key issues. Um, now, the question is whether, whether when, we, when we ask this question of what is the question of the campaign, are we asking what is the objective or what is the subjective question? So in the end, we may say it's a referendum on the president. And then the way the ball bounces in the campaign um, he may be reelected, but does that mean the country came to a positive um, view of the way he's handled these things, or they just decided for one reason or another they didn't like Joe Biden? Um, in which case, the result of the election doesn't answer the question of the election. <laughs> so, so in some sense, there's the, what the question should be of the election, and then there's what the question actually is of the election. And I find the more I think back to past elections I covered, and the more we learn about the voter behavior and how hard it is to pin down, um, and the more we get bombarded by uh, various different takes of pundits about what's really happening, 
I think of it in terms of two questions. There's what the, what the question should be of the election and then what the question ultimately is of the election. And I don't know that we can figure that out until the election actually takes place. Um, and I, and so when I think about what should this election be about, for me, it's about obviously the president, it's not just the president's response to the challenges of the day. And I include the challenges of the economy in the challenges of COVID-19, because I, I've been persuaded by economists that only until you solve COVID-19 can you get to the economic um, rebirth that everybody wants. Um, and so to the extent that you bungle the one, you're bungling the other. And so to think of economic policy separate from COVID policy seems to me to be a mistake. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a referendum on the way the president has handled it, but it also should be a way to illuminate the way we think about the presidency. Obviously, I think this because I wrote a book about it, but um, I think there's a larger conversation that this president, that this campaign should be about, which is to change the expectations for the job and be reminded of its seriousness and also, um, well, just to be reminded of its seriousness and not keep getting sidetracked the way we have in previous campaigns um, by uh, the shiny object of the moment. John, as you know from firsthand experience, the news media plays an ever important role in providing information that voters and non-voters alike use to learn about and evaluate the candidates, officials, and issues. Uh, we do have a journalism program at JMU, and I want to ask, what advice do you have for both rising journalists and your peers about covering elections, especially this year and the presidency as a whole? Well, I think my 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 view is the same view I um, gave Peter Hamby when he did a look back at the 2012 campaign, which was um, get off Twitter. Um, don't. I mean, I guess it's impossible to say get off it for the entire campaign. Um, but, but do something to basically come as close to that as possible. I think it does, it has a series of distorting effects. One, um, it gives you a misshapen, uh, understanding of where the race is and what's important. Um, because our job is to look at things and develop theories and gather information and synthesize it. You naturally do that with Twitter, but you're, in a sense, garbage in, garbage out. If you're taking your readings from um, a highly refined, misshapen view of the world, then your understanding of the world is going to be misshapen. Also, Twitter tends to be um, focused on the momentary and the uh, unimportant. Um, and obviously, I'm constantly struggling myself to pay attention to what the job really is about and what, what we should be thinking about collectively um, as a country. And also Twitter just makes people mean and pulls out their worst impulses. And so you don't want, you don't want that. Um, so that would be one of my first big ones. Um, and then I think the other thing I would do is, um, is to spend a little more time being uncomfortable um, with uns or, or just being uncomfortable, whether it means being challenged in ideas that you've held, which is to say going out and seeking out viewpoints that are opposite to the, your basic understanding of things so that, you're, so that you can get comfortable with being presented with contrary information, uh, assuming it's being offered in good faith. Um, because you don't want the human reaction to unfamiliar familiar information to be a barrier to your 
evaluating that information. Um, and this is part of our cocooning life, um, makes it ever more scratchy and itchy to be faced with information that's, um, that, that contradicts what we already believe. Um, and I think to the extent you cultivate a lens that looks as, as widely as possible, um, that's, that's kind of our job as journalists anyway, um, is, to keep, is to keep our ears open. Um, and you kind of have to fight for that now in a way that you didn't in the past. John, we ask a final question of all of our guests on Democracy Matters, and we would like to present it to you. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? Uh, um, I guess picking up on the answer I just gave, what I would do to strengthen democracy is um, try in some way to, to educate and remind us all of the benefits of restraint, which we know in our private lives is a beneficial attribute. So for example, it surely has happened to everyone and maybe multiple times that your first impression of something turned out to be wrong and usually about other people. Um, and so the beneficial effect of that experience should be that we think, oh, you know, my first take on this is, is potentially not correct. Um, that upon reflection, I might learn that in fact, it's the exact opposite of what I believe. Um, and yet when we come to politics, that seems to go out the window. Um, and obviously there's an entire organization and we're about to go through a campaign in which both sides encourage their supporters to think the worst of the opponent. So you're fighting against a significant amount of money and energy being um, taught, being thrown at you. But restraint is at the key, is at the heart of empathy. Uh, and restraint is at the heart of thinking in the long term and not the short term. And it's at the heart of James Wilson, the political scientist's definition of character, which is the ability to kind of hold off on your own personal gut reactions, to, to meaningfully consider the alternative viewpoints of others, and before acting to meaningfully take into account the consequences outside of your circle. Um, and all of that requires some restraint. It requires um, pausing. And we all can think of very quickly the downsides of pausing. You know, quick action is um, uh, is necessary. It's why the presidency was created. But everything pulls us to react quickly um, and and to put off the consequences. Um, um, almost every consumer proposition uh, is to bring us something quickly and at the press of a button and to hide the cost of it. Um, so, to the extent that culture and politics all fights for us to have a hot take and to um, throw over restraint, I would, um, I think there's a benefit in trying to inculcate restraint in our behavior and in our public life. John Dickerson, author of The Hardest Job in the World, The American Presidency. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Democracy Matters. Well, thank you very much. It's been a treat to, uh, to answer these great questions. Thank you. Listeners, you can find a link to purchase the book and you'll want to read the whole thing and find discussion questions in the episode notes. Until next time.